Okay, uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, welcome to the uh, closing session of the MB1 101 uh, lecture series. We've had eight lectures so far. This will be the ninth, not technically a lecture. But um, at the outset, we said that the, the purpose of the ME101 uh, series is to let those of you who are interested uh, find out why it is that Singapore should be concerned or interested in the events that uh, are going on in the Middle East. Uh, I see some familiar faces here, and um, I'm sure there are others who are online who have been with us uh, throughout the two months or so. So thank you all for your support. As I said, this closing session is meant to wrap up what we've talked about in the past and draw direct parallels to, um, to Singapore and, and why we should uh, continue to follow these events. Um, so a reminder before we start uh, that uh, you can... Those of you who are here, just raise your hands if you have questions at the end of this. For those that are watching via Zoom, uh, do the usual, type in your questions and send it to us and we'll take them in due course. Uh, so for today's wrap-up, uh, we have uh, Ms. Michelle Teo, um, Executive Director of the Middle East Institute, who uh, is uh, quite properly placed to, to wrap this up. Michelle spent uh, many years at the Foreign Affairs Ministry, before making a detour uh, to IBM and others, um, and, and eventually making her way back into uh, the Institute. And she's, I think, singularly responsible for, for the Institute, having set up the Middle East Directorate at the MFA uh, all those years ago. And uh, over to you, Michelle. Thanks a lot, Carl. So I want to welcome all of you to taking the trouble to come here. I know we're not the most uh, accessible place, but thank you very much. What I'm going to do is talk about three sort of broad themes. I'll talk first about geopolitical competition in the Middle East. I will then look at the economic and social challenges in the Middle East, before finally wrapping up to look at what it really means for Singapore. One of the things that we've always tried to do, and we try to do this in the work, all the work that we do, but particularly for this program that we run, is that to really look at it, circle it back to us here in Singapore and in the region and always ask the question, what does this mean for us? What are the implications? One of the things that we found, and I, I realized this even in the years I was in the foreign ministry, you can't really ignore the Middle East. Uh, what happens there has some kind of impact on us here in Southeast Asia, either directly or indirectly. Right. So, I mean, that's really... That was really the fundamental sort of uh, background to why this institute was even set up uh, when it was first set up more than 10 years ago. So let's talk first about the geopolitical competition in the Middle East. There are many changes taking place there geopolitically. There's been a lot of talk about a U.S. withdrawal, and this continues to be a view that is held by a lot of people that the U.S. has withdrawn. In my view, there's very little actual evidence that this is happening. Uh, because they have still retained their key military bases in Bahrain and in uh, Qatar, right? Um, but what is clear is that the Middle East is becoming very much like Southeast Asia. Why do I say this? The Americans withdrew from Vietnam very rapidly in the most chaotic way uh, at the end of the Vietnam War, right? Because there was a recognition for of a few things. One, 
this was not going to be a war that they could win. Two, this really wasn't their war. And three, there was no real threat to them existentially. If we take a look at what's happening in the Middle East, I think our view here within the Institute is that something similar is happening in the Middle East. You know, what goes on in the Middle East is not going to be an existential threat to the United States. I think there is also fatigue about putting boots, boots on the ground. This whole sort of war on terror that started and ramped up following 9-11, right, was not something that the Americans, I, I feel that they went into it not truly understanding what they were facing and what they were dealing with. When you deal with non-state actors, with terrorists, terrorist groups, or extreme groups, it's very difficult to put your finger on them. They don't follow the rules of traditional warfare. You know, it is very difficult to pinpoint what the problem is. And the, I think a fundamental question that maybe wasn't asked at that time or was asked and there was an answer that over time they've realized might not be the answer for them, which is that, is it necessarily existential, right? And so I think what you see now with the United States is something that is much more transactional. Now, this also includes with Israel, okay? I know what happened in the weekend, we will deal with that later on, but let me just talk now about the geopolitics of this, this region, of the Middle East as a region. I don't think that the Americans believe that what is going on in, in the Middle East is an existential threat to them. But within the Middle East, not just among the Gulf states, but also with Israel, I think Israel, uh, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates, I think for them, Someone, a country that really concerns them, and I and I think they see as a real threat is Iran. And this is not the case necessarily for the Americans, right? So I think this is why you see what you see now that they have moved up. A lot of people use the term offshore balancer. I am a bit ambivalent about that, although I can understand in terms of the if you talk about it as a visual, how that actually is viable and it works as a term. But I don't think that the Americans will ever completely lose interest in the Middle East. And it may not necessarily be about the geographical space itself. I think actually it is really about the maritime. It is about keeping the sea lanes open. It is about keeping those sea lanes safe. Okay, Singapore is a maritime nation. We depend on trade. The sea lanes are our lifeline as a country. So... I, I sort of see it in that way. And I think in that sense, it also makes sense for us and it, it is relevant to us. Okay, that's one. The second thing is that what you can see now is that with the Abraham Accords and with the Americans effectively, you know, earlier this year we were in Israel and uh, we asked some of the Israelis that we knew, said, you know, what does this Abraham Accord mean for you? And you know what they said? We don't know. We're not sure. We have never been in a state where uh, where they actually um, we actually can talk to them in an official capacity on an official platform. So they were not sure where this was going to go. But I think what was clear to them was that the Americans weren't necessarily losing interest, but the Americans were taking the position, which is that you all have to be responsible and you all need to speak to one another, you know. And so you see now the regional players carving out roles for themselves. You see an assertiveness with Saudi Arabia, which is the largest of the Gulf states. Um, the, the Emiratis have been quietly working behind the scenes, uh, preparing themselves, uh, you know, uh, and 
preparing for the day where they have to take the responsibility for their own their own uh, defense and their own uh, success and survival, but also have a role to play within the region, you know, or at least work collegially with the other regional, with the other states in the region. Whether this works out or not is hard to say because, you know, they do have their tensions and there's a lot, there can be a lot of push-pull among the different sort of Gulf states. You also see players like Turkey, Israel, uh, Turkey and Iran uh, playing uh carving out spaces for themselves. And this is to be expected. For the Iranians, you know, it is about creating some kind of space and some kind of buffer around themselves so that they are not indirect, they're not directly threatened, okay? Uh, I think this is why you see that they support a lot of these terrorist groups like the Hezbollah in Lebanon and uh, Hamas in uh, in uh, Palestine, right? Um, uh, Turkey... Uh, also wants some kind of sort of role for itself. And it has its own strategic interests, right? Um, it has its own area of influence, but, you know, you can't function in the Middle East and ignore the Gulf. So they do have to engage in one way or another. So you see this sort of movement and changes, and I don't think they're going to go back to what it was. It's, it only can only move forward. It's a question of whether it moves quickly or it moves slowly and what holds it up. And there will be obstacles along the way because that region, you know, it is traditionally, there's always been this difficulty in, in how they, they, they work with one another and how they deal with each other. For countries like Turkey and Iran, because they have a, such a strong sense of their own history and their ancient civilizations, they find it difficult. Um, and I guess in many ways, they probably consider the, the Gulf states upstarts, you know, because, you know, where is your history? What is your history? So this is where you'll see that sort of push-pull and that sort of tension. All this to be expected, to be very honest. Yeah, and I, in my view, it's a, it's a step in the right direction. You have to be responsible for your own region, for your own defense, for your own success. And you must learn how to manage any failures or setbacks for yourself. You can't expect someone else to do this for you. And that is the difficulty. But then what is the other difficulty for, for a lot of these countries? If not the Americans, then whom? So there's been this big debate, you know, what about China? China coming into it? Is China a big player? Watch the Chinese carefully. They are, uh, they are more ambivalent than you think. You know, they say one thing, but what they do in terms of actions not necessarily matched to what they say. Okay, and this is the reality of when you have these large power powers. You know, there's no one dominant force now. There are different strong players, and they're bumping up against one another. That includes the Russians. They may be very preoccupied with Ukraine, but that doesn't stop them from being some kind of mischief maker, right? Russia has been in the Middle East for a long time. They've just been preoccupied at different parts of their history, either because of the collapse of the the USSR. You know, and then subsequently when they became the Russian Federation and they've had to deal with other tensions and, and difficulties, you know, and economically they have struggled as well. So that's the thing. Post-Abraham Accords, what has been the new thing in the press? It has been all about normalization between Saudi Arabia and Israel. Is that going to happen? I don't know. Is it something that they will have to deal with at some point? Yes. The ties between them are informal, have always existed, will never go away. Okay, Whether they can do this formally also depends on what goes on in the region. The impact that they have on one another, the knock-on effect of different actions and different, and different um, incidents that occur to them, 
um, inevitably affect some of these other sort of uh, sort of um, um, developments. But I think that the Abraham Accords, which the Americans pushed, you know, maybe for their own national interests or personal interests in the case of Trump, uh, but um, it really opened the door. And it set them down, I think, regionally, apart, them down, set them down a path that they, there's no turning back from it now. You know, you can only move forward. It's a question of whether you move, you move quickly or you don't, you know. But move forward, they will. Perhaps not at the pace that the rest of us would like, but it will happen, okay? So I think this is, uh, this is sort of how I see the geopolitics of the region, right? It is impacted by what's going on outside but it is also impacted by what is happening within that region. And in that, there are parallels with Southeast Asia. They're, they're, we are not much different. Southeast Asia is the same. We are impacted and we can be buffeted by the developments externally, but there are also dynamics that are occurring internally. You know, And you can see this if you look at how ASEAN is evolving. You will see that um, it is. It moves sometimes forwards, backwards. It moves forwards. It moves backwards. It can be very frustrating. It's a huge mechanism now, uh, and a way that kind of slows things down as well. But they they have kept moving forward, and I think we will see the same thing with the Middle East as we as we uh, you know in the next what maybe 10, 10, 20 years. You know, so that's the geopolitical competition and the adjustments to one another. Um, one thing to bear in mind always is that people are not friendly with each other because they're friends. It is about common interests. Those common interests will bring them together. Then there may be something that they don't agree with and that will push them apart. You know, And you will see this coming together, moving apart, coming together, moving apart. It's a very pragmatic approach. It is the reality of how um, relationships work among countries, which are similar and yet different, uh, which have similar interests and at the same time have their own national and domestic concerns that they have to that they have to deal with. So this is how this is how I see it. Which means, in other words, it's going to be a bit messy. You're not always going to be able to read the tea leaves very clearly. But as a region, it is moving and it has to move. Which brings me now to the next theme, okay? Which is um, talking about the economic and social challenges in the Middle East. The economics are changing and they're changing very quickly. Uh, I'd like to. I'd like to think that I know people would like to think that it's because of climate change that countries like uh, the UAE and Saudi Arabia um, are therefore looking at how diversifying the economy. I think it's more complicated than that. It's not just about climate change. Climate change keeps getting caught up in the politics of energy. Domestically, both these countries and I look at the two big players, and you can see that there'll be a impact for many of the others. Right? These are the two rich countries together with Qatar. Right. I want to just look at these two first. Basically, if you look at the two of them, there is very strong domestic pressure. Okay, the, Demographically, the Middle East has got the youngest population. Or they have a huge youth bulge. What are you going to do with them? You have all this oil money, you educate them overseas. They come back with ideas um, and, and dreams and aspirations. They look at their peers, whether you live in Europe or United States, you know, or um, in parts of Southeast Asia, and they say, I want that. I want what they have. The infrastructure and the way the societies are set up in these two countries, and I only look at these two countries for now, but you can extrapolate to the others. The infrastructure doesn't accommodate these young people, right? Where do you put them? What jobs can you give them? You send them and they are bright. Bright, 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 okay? And they're driven and they're ambitious. 
but they're also in many ways very westernized. So here you have these young people who come with these ideas and ambitions and goals, you know, no different from the rest of us when we were in our 20s, okay, um, that sort of passed a long time ago, but, you know, uh, but, you know, the same things that you want, they want now, where do they, where do they place? So if you look at the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, sometimes you look at what the crown prince is doing and people are like, why is he doing this? It doesn't make sense. I, to me, it does make sense. A lot of people, and I'll give you an example. I, I probably have, don't have the same view as most people. I actually think that both Neom and the line that the crown prince set up, yes, he wants to use it to showcase the modernization of Saudi Arabia, that they are ahead, they're cutting edge, et cetera, et cetera. I think there's a domestic imperative as well. If you go down to Neom and the line, all the young, all the people who are marketing it, selling it, talking it up, you know, they're all young people. He's giving them an outlet and he's giving them a light at the end of their time now. How this will pan out, I'm not sure. Not so clear. Okay. Because the truth is that that is an extremely conservative society. Okay. And it's not a surprise, you know. I, you know, you look at Singapore. I, let's look at Singapore. Singapore, 21st century state, fantastic infrastructure. You know, what I mean, transparent rules, laws, regulations. Our society is still a conservative, rather old-fashioned society. Okay, we all have stories about what relatives have said, relatives ask, relatives expect. Doesn't matter when we were in our twenties or in your thirties. Even today's twenty-year-olds have the same sort of pressures and questions asked of them. Okay, so you look at that, this is Singapore, right? And we're so open. What more for countries like Saudi Arabia and the Emirates? I think they do remarkably well, given that they are having to deal with all of this. Is it because they're absolute monarchies? You know, maybe, maybe not. But at least there's a vision and there's an understanding that they need to deal with this. Okay, So there are all these very ambitious economic transformation plans, which again, I said, you know, I'm not sure how successful they will be. But I think that they will keep progressing, they will keep moving forward because they have to now, right? They also must diversify from fossil fuels. And this is something that they do recognize. They understand the impact of climate change. In these countries, they, they see it firsthand. I mean, they're largely desert states, okay? Water is a problem for them. Um, they have a problem with desertification, you know, they, you know, you know, the Emirates, for example, has has been looking at desalination technology for a long time, right? Uh, the Saudis, you know, are looking at all all the different sort of modern ideas. You know, they're looking also recognizing they also have small populations. They're looking at how can they harness AI for to their advantage, you know, to take them into the twenty first century, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So they understand these problems. How successful they will be, it really depends. Okay. There are many mindsets that they need to shift, they need to change. They have social compacts with their societies, right? Um, where a lot of things are subsidized and they can't take the subsidies away without causing a small riot. You know, it, it really is problematic for them. But at some point, they're going to have to remove the subsidies, right? If you don't take away the subsidies, for example, from fossil fuels, you know, they're not going to realize how expensive it is. Right, all the rest of us really suffer with this. You know, what I mean, you pay a small fortune to fill up the tank of your car, you know, and then you want to look at electric vehicles, and it's just as expensive, you know. So we are caught in that where if you if you are if you have your energy scarce, you know, your scarce of of sources, these are the problems you face. They have a different kind of problem: is weaning their people off these sort of expectations and expecting them to move into you know other jobs. You know, it was interesting because we. 
um, we just came back from Abu Dhabi and one of the comments I heard was, no, everybody runs away from these research institutes because they want to work in the government because it's a much easier pace. I was like, oh, it's the other way around in Singapore. You know, you work in the government, you want to run away to, to work in places where you have more of a, a work-life balance, you know? So clearly there's a big mindset, mindset cultural shift that they need to make. You know, and we tried to cover some of this in our in our uh, in our sessions. You know, what I mean, we we really wanted to look at about women and and children and youth because these are the two big areas that they really need to look at. You know, um, a few years ago when the Saudis allowed uh, women to drive in the Western media, there was a lot of poo pooing about it. Oh, it's too little, it's too late. What's the big deal? I discovered it was a big deal. There were these men who were very close to the royal family who objected to their women being allowed to drive the car on their own. And I was so shocked. In our country, I can walk into a car showroom and choose a car I want to test drive. And no one says to me, does your husband agree or not? You know, I would be so insulted if someone did that to me. But these, they live with this, you know what I mean? You go to Saudi Arabia today and I, I would like to go back. I would like to go there at some point because I want to see this for myself. But there are a lot of women around who are working, etc. And these women are smart. You know what I mean? In Abu Dhabi, we were, our inter main interlocutor was a woman. She was outspoken, articulate, highly intelligent, you know, and the boss completely relied on her because she knew what she was doing. Is this the way forward in that in those countries? I hope so. Because I think, you know, when you have a labor force, you have to have a balanced labor force, not just about the males. You lose a huge viable resource when you when you sort of constrain or you circumscribe the women or the youth. Like, oh, you're too young, you wouldn't know. How do you know that? Sometimes, you know, with the with the courage of youth, you bring in perspectives and ideas that sometimes those of us who are a little older have long forgotten about and we don't see that refreshing perspective. So, you know, this is, we have this here, I think in Saudi Arabia and in, in, the, in the Emirates and in other Middle Eastern countries, they also have to accept this and learn to evolve this, you know, and you see this too in Qatar. Having said all that, I think you're not going to do away with oil anytime, okay? I had this long discussion with a colleague from, uh, the Prime Minister's office, the, the National Climate Secretary, he was optimistic. He thought that we would eventually run off oil, fuel for fossil fuels. I told him that I felt that moving forward, it would be one of other resources, energy resources that people use. And that we agreed to disagree because we had different perspectives about it. I don't see how we can completely wean off. You know what I mean? It's going to take a long time. It's very expensive. The new technologies are very, very pricey. You know, and politically, if this these pumping oil is going to give you the income, the revenue that you need to do that, make to to you know to build the 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 fancy sort of glossy glass steel sort of structures that show that you've arrived, and also to pump money into sectors that are new sectors that like you want to be in the frontier of it. You know, they're all going into space. They're looking at AI. Where's the money going to come from, right? So it's going to be, it's still going to come from oil. And that's where I talk about this politics of energy, that there's that push and pull. And you will see this even as they, they go through these social and economic transformations. This is going to be their big challenge. Uh, and I, I don't know how far they will progress in, in 15 to 20 years. So it's interesting to watch to see what they're doing. You know, The last part about this is the impact on the society. Uh, one of the things that really interests me is um, this sort of liberalization. You know, they they want to they want to allow um, they want to allow uh, uh, bands to come and perform. You know, 
which they consider not very moral, but they want to allow these bands and these performers to come in. They want to have, uh, they want to allow a greater freedom for people to socialize, to mix, etc. And you know, um, you know, and one good thing was like in the UAE, they said, okay, non-Muslim couples can cohabit, right? So you do all these things. It looks like you have one set of rules that are okay for anyone who's not Muslim and not a uh, national of your country. How do you deal with the nationals of your country? Are you going to say, no, you're not allowed to do this? Your young people are going to object to that. Um, you know, and in the meantime, the older members of your population are going to object to the liberalized, the liberal sort of things that you're allowing uh, non, non, um, uh, Muslims and uh, non-natives to, to actually have. But the reality is that the populations of these countries are so small and therefore their talent pool is so small that they need to actually attract this temp this sort of, uh, they need to attract this talent in, right? I mean, right now, Dubai is the hip and happening place for everybody to go to. Everybody wants to go to Dubai because it's got cool clubs and bars to go to. It's got cool places to hang out, you know. Uh, the money is good, et cetera, et cetera. The hope was that there would be a transfer of technology, quote unquote, meaning that these people who come in as expatriates would basically train the 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 young Saudis in the skill sets. You know what I mean? It's like that transfer, the, the soft skills get passed over. I'm skeptical. I don't think that's going to happen because for two reasons. One, these guys go in there, they make the money, I think they want to come out. The second is that you have to ask yourself, do the young Saudis want to learn these skills? Because it's hard work. You know, you have to do the hard yards to get the skills that you want. I mean, you guys who are sort of here doing a, either postgrad or undergraduate, whatever. you know what it's like. It's not easy, you know what I mean? When you finish with all this, you then got to look for a job. And that's another big adjustment after that because the university and being a student is very different from being a, in a profession, you know what I mean? In these countries, do they really understand that there is a big transition? Is it, We've all gone through that culture shock. You leave university, go into the workforce, and you're like, oh, it's so difficult, you know, and everything I do isn't correct. How are they going to deal with this, you know what I mean? So there's a lot of this up, this... It's not obvious upheavals, but there are certainly undercurrents that are, are running there. And you can see a lot of the transformation and the changes that are occurring. Um, it, it, it's a lot of fun to go there. You know, I mean, I had a great time in Abu Dhabi. You know, I mean, it was fun. It isn't overbuilt up. I'm not a big fan of Dubai sometimes because it's just too many high rise buildings. But you can sense there's a buzz down there. You can actually feel it when you go there. You know, people are excited. They want to make a difference. They, they want to get stuff done. They want to do things. You know, it's exciting. But who is it? Is it the expatriates or is it the locals? You know what I mean? And how do you meld the two together in a way where you are respectful of your roots and your culture and your faith? while you embrace these new ideas and these new um, practices that come in as a consequence of opening the country up, you have to be prepared for that. You know? And I'm not sure that the population is completely ready for that. So I talked a bit about climate change. The Middle East is probably going to bear the brunt of it. You know? And uh, they know it. Uh, they know they have to deal with it. I'm not sure whether they will be able to rise above the politics to actually deal with what, what is really existential. You know, For us in Singapore, climate change is existential. We're low-lying, we could get flooded over, You know, there's a lot of things that could happen. We're so near to the equator that all the global warming numbers for us are higher than for other, other countries because we're almost on the equator, so it's a problem. You look at the Middle East and you look at these countries and you drive for, you know, you drive for two hours on these on these 
fabulous expressways, highways, you know, but all you see is sand and desert plants around you. And once you you don't see that, all you see are glass and steel high-rise buildings, you know what I mean? They are very dry. Uh, water is clearly an issue for them. Um, I don't know how they're, they're, they're going to have to find the balance between managing the impact of climate change against what they need to do to pivot their economies and their societies, you know, in order to deal with a world with a lot less, if not no fossil fuels. So that's going to be the big. The other thing is they love big cars. The cars are all massive. It's crazy, you know. So those are the sort of broad sweeps, okay? Let's look at what it means for Singapore. I mean, Carl talked about this earlier. I mean, it was our whole premise when we started these courses was why should we care, right? My answer is that we are affected one way or another. The most obvious that people think about is, oh, it's because of the religious influence. That's not the only influence. There's a whole lot of other things. Every time the prices of oil go up, they reduce the production of oil, we get impacted and you feel it immediately in your wallet because you go and pump petrol and you're like, what? You know, like this is highway robbery, you know what I mean? I, the number of times that I've like complained about it, you know, is one thing, okay? The second thing is that the rivalry between the US and China is here to stay. It's not going to go away anytime soon, okay? Yeah, the Chinese have always said when I was a young diplomat, you would hear the Chinese say, what is 500 years? It's a drop in the ocean for us. We have been around and then they will hail like millennium back, you know. A country like Singapore, I need to say to them, you know, we've been around only since 1965 as an independent state, right? So that rivalry will always exist, you know, uh, for whatever domestic reasons. And there are strong domestic reasons for why the Chinese sort of do this uh, international chest dumping. But there are also pragmatic reasons for it because they are looking for markets. They're looking for access to resources. They're a massive, massive country, okay? And what you see, all those places that have so far been profited from, from the development or, or sort, of, sort of a liberalization, these are like first, second, third, maybe fourth tier. There are a whole lot of other provinces and cities that are poor and they want a part of that economic pie. Where the Chinese government going to get it from? They're going to have to look outwards, you know what I mean? And they're always going to bump up against the Americans. I personally think the Americans are a little bit over obsessed with the Chinese in terms of the, you know, that's like they're the, they're the key rival and the only rival that they've got. And I actually think that they need to look around a little bit more because the Chinese do a lot of chest dumping, but there are other more insidious sort of um, challenges that all of us face, you know, and, and for the United States in particular, because they're such a lightning rod as a country, you know. So that's that's one other point. Traditionally, for the US and China, Southeast Asia and East Asia have been the areas of contestation. So you'll always see this about the South China Sea. You know, they'll pull out maps from the days of Admiral Zheng He and say, you know, this shows you that these were all our vassal states, therefore they belong to us. It's like, no, but this is not the time of Zheng He anymore. But that's how they, they view it, right? It has always been Southeast Asia and East Asia. You know, there's a lot of tensions between them with the Koreans, with the Japanese. Um, you know, the history is pretty fraught with all of them. And it's not just a, a 20th century fraught uh, history. You know, it does go back a little bit further than that. So it is, you know, you have to know that about the the the, the, the rivalry. And then you have the Americans who have built these alliances and partnerships in our part of the world. You look at the Middle East, it's happening there as well. 
You know, you're going to see the Chinese and the Americans bump up against one another and have a certain amount of rivalry and there'll be some testiness between them. There'll be a lot of posturing, you know, um, and um, I think that's to be expected. And for the countries of the Middle East, this is going to be an entirely new arena that they're going to have to deal with. But they are going to have to manage this because they are responsible for they are responsible for their own region, you know. And this was something that someone I spoke to when we were in Abu Dhabi. He said this to me. He said, "We we must do something," you know. And I said, "But do what?" And he and he gave me this, you know. He had no answer because how how do you, it's it's a new terrain for them, you know. And it's very clear to me that it was a new terrain for them. Will they make it? I think they will. They will find their way, not not necessarily in a way that suits everybody. But you know, sometimes the best solution is when everyone is upset about it. Nobody feels like that is that is a good solution. Then maybe that's the most successful solution. You know, there are economic changes that um, are opportunities for for a country like Singapore to actually get involved in. Uh, but I also think that politically we cannot ignore them. You know, uh, we as a multi sort of ethnic, multi religious society, we have members in our community who whose families hail back to the Hadramat in Yemen, you know, or who have who who come from Oman, you know. I mean, when we went to the Saudi National Day reception, you see, I bumped into an old friend of my sister's. Right, I had forgotten that she is uh, she is of Arab origins, you know because I haven't seen her for a long time. And she said, why are you here? You know, I said, why are you here? You know, and I came because, you know, it was the Middle East Institute. But she was there because she's part of their community, part of their diaspora, you know. Um, and I and we forget this, you know what I mean? And I think it it it, it means that we, we can never ignore. We also should always be looking there to see what are the opportunities, what are the ties that we can build with them. And I think what you see now among the Gulf states especially is that they have started to look at Asia. They've literally started to look, uh, is it East when they look at us? East, right? They're literally looking East to us because um, they've realized that we have actually managed to get ahead and we're not necessarily overly dependent on either China or India. So I think there are those opportunities. Uh, and I, I don't think that the competition with them is bad, you know. Uh, you know, Singapore Airlines and Qatar Airways, you know, I mean, Qatar Airways was was ranked number one. I'm sure Singapore Airlines was not pleased about that at all. But I say competition is a good thing. People get complacent otherwise, right? Airports. We are supposed to have one of the finest airports in the world. Let me tell you that Doha's airport can give us a good run for our money. These guys are smart. They have, they have, they, whoever is advising them, they picked up like what we did. They've learned the best, they've taken the best practices and then they pump money into it and they've run off with these, these ideas. They really want to be hubs, you know, whether it's Dubai or it is uh, Doha. I mean, everyone I know says, oh, yeah, I flew to, I flew to Paris via Doha. I flew to, Par you know, I flew to London via. I flew to London via um, uh, Dubai, you know, and I was like, wow, they're not even doing the direct flights. Like, those are horrible, but they, they actually stop in these places, you know, and they find it quite enjoyable to do that, stop for half a day or a day of something and then continue your flight on, you know. So they are becoming um, very competitive aviation hubs, you know. Everyone's fighting for the same talent. There's a small pool and everybody wants that same pool of talent. 
So if we can't offer top dollar, these guys go to Dubai, or they go to Doha, you know, uh, or they even would go to, to Riyadh, which has, has transformed so much that people are not afraid to go to Riyadh. You know, I mean, the Saudis have, have gotten into the game and gotten on to the fact that they've got to be a little bit more welcoming, a little bit more open, etc. You know, I don't think competition is zero sum. I think there are a lot of opportunities for us. Uh, I think our companies uh, could really do quite a bit. And, you know, it's interesting because all these, whenever you talk to all of the people from, from any of these countries, it's always the same thing. You know, in Singapore, you've managed to do this, you've managed to do that, you've managed to do this. I feel we're a bit complacent here in Singapore, but they um, still see opportunities and lessons that can be learned from us. And I think that's so important. So let me now conclude with a, a quick word about climate change. I talked about us it being existential. Uh, I think it really, so it was a workshop that looked at climate change. And you know, one of the things I said was instead of everybody talking at multilateral forums, why don't like Singapore and the Emirates do something? Small countries, uh, you know, we're quite successful. Why can't we do something? The Emiratis have invested in us, we have invested in them. Um, I think we can look at you know, uh, solutions and opportunities and possibilities. Start somewhere uh, and do something about climate change instead of everybody talking about it. It's it's happening already. I think we are really almost too late. But uh, why don't we do something like that? You know what I mean? So maybe that's the way forward. You know what I mean? So that's why I don't see... I don't see the Middle East as a region being a competition for this part of the world. I think there will always be this cross these cross, uh, cross-pollination of ideas. Uh, there will be these visits across both regions by businesses, you know. Uh, there will always be this interest in engaging at different levels, uh, you know. So all those lead me to conclude that we should pay attention to the Middle East because it does impact us. Hey, thanks, Michelle. Uh, thanks, thanks for that uh, very quick wrap-up. Uh, you took us through, well, several facets uh, that Com- this global competition that that uh, that we have in common with them, there's also uh, opportunities that, that we can uh, leverage on for, for each other and, and work together on. And in fact, a lot of these things uh, are happening, as you say. Uh, but I want to take you back to your opening statement where you promised to tackle uh, what's probably on top of everyone's minds, the uh, attacks by Hamas over the weekend in uh Southern Israel. Right? Um, so I, just a short while ago, I think uh, Minister Shanmugam uh, said that, you know, among other things, he said that, you know, Singapore has continues to support a two-state solution for Palestine. Uh, but in the wake of what's happened, you know, uh, killing of women, children, uh, you know, hostages being taken, and Israel now uh, planning what appears to be a land invasion. Well, what... Honestly, uh, uh, the uh, prospects for a two-state solution. Um, you know, that was always going to be a difficult uh, goal to reach. With what happened on the 7th of October, I'm not sure we will reach that, we may ever reach that solution in truth. You know, I have some sympathy for the for the Palestinians. Um, I think, you know, they, they their plight is not... It's the worst plight that any any national, any country or any any people should have to go through. But what happened over the weekend, um, you know, it's terrorism. And I'm sorry, you know, as a Singaporean, I cannot 
accept that. I cannot condone that. Um, that is not the way to deal with um, an issue like this. You know? So I'm not sure what Hamas was thinking in doing what they did. Uh, I'm not sure I even understand. I can understand why they felt they had to do it, but I think some of the actions that have occurred, just the sheer brutality, um, I find it difficult, you know, to 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 understand really where where they are headed with this, um, and I'm not surprised by the Israeli uh, response. Uh, I'm not saying that they are they are they are not at fault. I mean, they have they have been so distracted by their own domestic politics that, in my view, they took their eye off the ball, right? But Israel is a is a bit of a strange country. It's almost like two Israels if you go there. You know, Jerusalem is one and Tel Aviv is another. But they have now coalesced around this issue because this is a threat to them as an enemy, as an existence, right? Um, you know, a lot of people have talked about, oh, you know, what about the ordinary people, et cetera, et cetera. So my question then is this, you know, if 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 the people are at your core of this why would hamas resort you you can make you can you can do the attack that you did but why that level of violence you know it is terrorism and i don't think anyone can condone this and for us here in singapore i don't think we can condone it either and i'm quite sure that minshan when he spoke would have talked about this you know what i mean because you can be sympathetic but don't get involved in that you know what i mean and you know nowhere do we feel this sort of more, more than we do here in Singapore, where where we are so diverse, you know, it's not just about, uh, you know, I mean, they always talk about the four, the four sort of national, the four sort of ethnic groups that are in Singapore. The truth is that there are many more people because we have so many people who come here, they work here, they live here. Many of them choose to make their home here eventually, you know, and all shapes and sizes, and they call themselves Singaporean. Maybe you're not born here, but you you become a Singaporean. So you know, if you if you you if you want to sympathize and you and you feel that what has happened to the Palestinians is unjust, yes, I think you have every right to have that view. But to resort to terrorism is not something that I personally I can accept. I think that is where we must draw a line. You know, as 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 human beings, we have to draw that line there because you know the reaction now that's going to response is going to come now from the israelis this is about defending their existence as a state and as a country so this is where you know i i can't tell you what's going to happen now from this but i it's going to be a long grind uh, thank you very much, Michelle, for a very comprehensive overview of the middle east and summarizing the ma101 uh, series in a very short uh, period of time uh, I want to go back to your point on the U.S. as offshore balancer. I know like you are not in favor of this approach. Uh, however, as you rightly pointed out, there is geopolitical shifts uh, in the region. The U.S. perhaps focus in the region is declining and the, and the China is coming in into the region in very diplomatic and economic way. Uh, but also we are seeing that, um, you know, Saudi Arabia and Iran has uh, an agreement now. Uh, and most recently, um, by the leadership of the U.S., we have seen uh, the uh, India, Middle East, Europe corridor have been built. 
So the question is, looking uh, forward, do we uh, expect to see more of uh, the, the region is trying to come up with regional security framework rather than relying on the external powers? Uh, maybe something as ASEAN uh, have done. Um, so this is my first question. So the, the second question is also something coming up soon. Uh, Saudi Arabia is hosting GCC ASEAN Summit. Mm. Uh, and so in light of what you have discussed uh, about the Middle East, uh, the great power competition and the domestic issues in the Middle East. Uh, so the, the former relation between GCC and ASEAN has started in 2009, but nothing has much uh, evolved in terms of block-to-block relation. So what do you think uh, the reason that GCC ASEAN Summit is taking place now? Why the the Gulf wants to revive the block-to-block? Thanks. Two good questions. Um, Let me answer the first one. Uh, you asked about looking at what the the countries of the well, let's 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 focus that it's purely about it's really the Gulf states right what do they do so the thing is this you talk about uh, the Gulf states and what can they do I feel that they for a long time just took it for granted that the Americans would be there and would have their back I don't think the Americans will not have their back moving forward. It is just that the Americans are now taking a much more pragmatic, um, in many ways, very transactional approach. Because what happens in the Gulf has an impact on them, but it doesn't affect their existence as a country. Therefore, it is a much more sort of transactional approach. Don't be mistaken with the Chinese, you know, they, they will be very transactional as well. They're quite pragmatic. They will take a very transactional approach as well. And ultimately, what it comes back to, and I think you see this in the Gulf, is that they're all recognizing that maybe they need to do more among themselves. Uh, They need to try to um, work out mechanisms and modus operandi that work for them together. It won't be perfect. It's not always going to be collegial. There will be tensions and there will be annoyance with one another. You see this in Southeast Asia as well. You know what I mean? There is also quite a a, a range of development and wealth within the Gulf. And you that that will also be another sort of uh, sort of overarching layer that will impact the way that they work with one another. So you will see several levels. But I think ultimately what I see is that right now, Reluctant as they seem to be about it, I think there's a sort of grudging recognition that they need to be responsible for their own part of the world. They need to figure out what they want to do and how they want to do it, right? Who leads, really, everyone thinks that they should be leading it. They've got to work that one out. Okay, so I think, did I answer that question for you? Okay. Your second question was um, about the GCC ASEAN Summit. Um yeah, you know, I mean, I didn't know for the longest time that, that that GCC and ASEAN had some kind of relationship. And then my ASEAN friends, my ex-colleagues in ASEAN from the foreign ministry said, what do you mean you don't know? How can you not know this kind of thing? I said, nothing. Have they done anything? I said, if you Google it, nothing comes up, you know, or very little. So why are they doing this now? Uh, the time is right. The problem is struck is that in terms of the makeup, uh, their, their sort of constitution, how they are constituted and what their focus is. Uh, ASEAN and the GCC are are quite different, right? 
the GCC is a, is a, is really like a corporation, you know, sort of it's it's really economic and it's very specific and focused. Southeast ASEAN's ASEAN started out with the economics of it, but you know the origins of ASEAN when it was first formed and it was an original six. Okay, the 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 basis for that was that they didn't ever they wanted to try to ensure that Southeast Asia stopped having these bilateral and internecine wars because up to up to the point that ASEAN was formed. There were these wars all the time, whether it was within the countries or it was between the countries or it was between regions of countries, okay? This is a very, you know, you look at the history of Southeast Asia, take a look at Indochina. These are these were military kingdoms, you know, that have unified where they are. So you can see that basis. And that history was a fraught history up to that point, right? And then, you know, they came together and said, we can't keep doing this. We're all small. If we don't unify, we're all going to get eaten up by other people. We're not going to survive unless we do this collectively, right? And it was really about ensuring that there was peace in that re in the region. Okay. Fast forward to today, it's a massive population in this part of the world, right? There are some differences, like Singapore, for example, is a rapidly aging, declining population, but it's also one of the most advanced, right? Then you have other populations in other Southeast Asian, so Indonesia's got a massive population, they've got a huge young population as well, right? Uh, they're also massive, I mean, what, what 20,000 islands, 30,000 islands, you know, it's crazy, you know, they, they're really just huge. Um, but they're also very close to us, you know. Um, and But everybody knows that they need to band together to work collectively in order to try to move forward. When it was six, it was easier. When it became 10, it became a bit more difficult. The European Union has the same problem. You start out with an original small group. Then as you expand and you bring in people of different economic, at different economic uh, points in their development, etc., you begin to face all these complications, right? Is the GCC going to go in that direction? Who knows? This is something the GCC has to work out. Right now, I mean, you can talk about the, the, a summit and you can talk about probably, they, they will probably find some common areas where they can cooperate. But it will never be maybe to the extent that the Gulf would hope because the Gulf Cooperation Council's constitution is, is quite different from the way Southeast Asia and ASEAN was constituted. So therefore, there will take them some time to actually come to some kind of match. Should we have this kind of region-to-region -region cooperations? Yeah, of course you should. You know, the world as we now know it is no longer a Cold War world, right? It's no longer like one major power dominating everything. It has really become multipolar in that way. And in that sense, um, there is there is space for everyone to develop and to expand, but those spaces can be very transient. So you've got to grab your opportunities while you can and run with it. Otherwise, you know, that moment goes and that's it. You're, you're, you're done. You know, it doesn't exist anymore. You talked about this new corridor, India, Middle East and Europe. In theory, it's a good idea. In reality, I don't know how it's going to be executed because the BRI has been around for a long time, right? And um, it has its share of setbacks. You know, it has not been a complete success, but nor has it been a complete failure. Somewhere in between, right? And it continues to evolve. So with this one with India, I think it's good to have those alternatives, but how that pans out and how it actually becomes operational is another story altogether. 
So, I mean, that's the thing that uh, you, you need to see. But I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing because for smaller countries, uh, and even for the medium-sized countries, when you have a, a world that has all these different platforms and opportunities, you have more space to play with. So you have to choose more wisely and you have to be much more strategic. But the opportunities exist, you know. Uh, and I say this looking from the perspective of Singapore, which is a small country, you know, we, we're quite, we can be quite opportunistic, um, you know, um, sometimes too opportunistic, but it is a necessity because that has ensured our survival, not just our success. It has first and foremost been about our survival. And for many of these smaller countries playing in an arena like this, where there are so many spaces that you can work in, right? It gives you that opportunity uh, it gives you that doorway, so, that pathway so that you can ensure your own survival. But there are also the other opportunities to succeed if you know how to play the game and you know how to grab those opportunities. I see there's a question there. Thank you. Uh, I have uh, been a part of uh, four such lectures. Why should Singapore care about the developments in the Middle East? Uh, and I have observed that over the past four years, uh, most of the threats in terms of radicalization that may potentially come from the Middle East. That is one of the primary concerns. So uh, I, I, I see that we have been handling it exclusively as a Singaporean problem. Uh, but in other spheres of foreign policy, Singapore has been going in tandem with ASEAN. We have been hearing about ASEAN centrality. So why not treating this uh, radicalization as a foreign policy element and treating it in the same manner. And maybe we can have a session on uh, developments in the Middle East. Why should ASEAN care? So this has been my question. I'm not so sure dealing with the issue of radicalization can be handled so collectively. Uh, the, the, the 10 ASEAN countries are very different. The priorities are also quite different. This issue of, uh, of radicalization, um, I think is... Uh, may not be pertinent to everyone at the same sort of uh, level. I don't know if you have a view about that, but I mean, that's what I think, right? I'm not so sure that it's so easy to talk about ASEAN and radicalization. You must also realize that for ASEAN, um, this whole concept of not interfering in one another's countries and the way they govern and the way the politics occurs is something that most of the countries have held to be very, very sacred, you know. The fact that ASEAN took a position on Myanmar is a huge step forward, right? And 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 it was something that they had to do, right? But that's a conversation for a different day, I know. But in terms of looking at regularization as, as ASEAN, I think it works better if it is done bilaterally or it is between two or three countries. Uh, because there are some, it's a bit like a, a, a one of these Venn diagrams, you know, there are some intersections. They are not always the same intersections. Uh, and it doesn't always work well for all 10. You know, it, it works better, I think, if you deal with it in smaller groups. And this issue, and, and at the end of the day, the concern is a primarily domestic concern. Our domestic concerns in Singapore would be very different from the domestic concerns of, say, example, Indonesia or Malaysia or Thailand or Vietnam. Right, so I'm not sure that working, looking at radicalization as ASEAN, uh, you know, and putting it on the table in that way would necessarily work. It doesn't mean that they don't talk to one another. There are a lot of ASEAN has been around for so long, 
the networks are very are very very connected and they're very dense connections people know everybody knows somebody who worked in ASEAN or still in ASEAN you know has moved around etc so those networks because it's still a small region smallish region so those networks exist I'm just not sure that it can be tabled in a in a formal way as you are as you are asking you know what I mean so I hope that answers your question I don't know wants to jump in with that well I think I, the only thing I'm going to add to that is that Singapore's situation is unique we are the only country in ASEAN not uh, segregated by race or religion. So that makes us an outlier in this region. Uh, so we have our approach to radicalism uh, is going to be different. You know? And the, the flip side of the coin is that because we are different, we are a price target. You know? So... Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at you know, our issues with Indonesia in the days of JI and things like that, yeah. you know, that 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 will tell you that you know it's it's not really an effective way. We have a uh, you know, if you talk about signatures as far as attacks go, then an attack in Singapore is going to have a much, much, much higher signature than anywhere else in ASEAN. Hi. Yep. Hi, Patrick. Hi. No affiliation. Uh, just want to expand more on the point where the youths forming the demographic bubble in the Middle East are having more say and they are being observed to be quite remarkable persons. I want to ask further for your observation or whether if you have taken note about the underlying currents, if these uh, more outspoken group want to be good Western liberals, <laughs> They like whatever the West have, they want it. Do they understand that that's only a superficial level? Because to become Western requires them to build institutions. Yeah. So it is not necessarily they need to copy whole, wholeheartedly the Western concept of uh, whatever is benefited from the institutions and then shown at a superficial level. But do they understand that they need to make their own institutions that is relevant to their own people such that it can bind the political elites with the common man so that the nation together can go forward. Do you observe these uh, talented youths or whoever has decision-making power, do they know this underlying current or they are just looking outside and say, I want to copy that? Actually, there, was a, there have been surveys that have been done and um, one of the things you find is that they're really quite fragmented. The good example is Arab Spring, right? It started at this moment. It it sort of like reached this crescendo and then all of a sudden it disappeared, right? And that's because there weren't, um, they were, it was very fragmented. Uh, it was not particularly organized. It was rather spontaneous in that sense, right? On top of which, there was a mechanism that was not prepared to accommodate this, okay? Uh, these societies are conservative. And many of them are absolute monarchies. So, you know, we will never understand that in Singapore because, you know, we're, we're not, we're not an absolute, I mean, people, people might think otherwise, but we are not an absolute monarchy in any way, right? Therefore, it becomes more, it becomes harder to understand. So I find that hard to understand as well. You know, it's like, why is it it got so fragmented? You know what I mean? Why is it people coalesced around one thing and then it disappeared? Was it because of the internet? You know, was it because, 
Um, it was deliberately undermined, you know, in many ways. It could be a combination of all those different factors. It doesn't mean that the young people don't want many of these things. You know, that's the interesting thing about them. They What they don't want is some of the, the more so-called woke ideas from the West. They're not interested in those so much, okay? What they really want is, I would like to be able to work in the job that I that, that I'm passionate about, okay? I don't want to be pressured into getting married very young or and married to someone that my mother has chosen for me. I want to choose for myself. That's a whole different pathway. You know, I mean, those of us who have gone down that pathway will tell you it's a difficult pathway to navigate. But that's what they, they, they don't want. You know what I mean? These are the things that they want, those opportunities that, that they see. Basically, what they want is they just want to live normal lives. You know, and this is the thing that you hear all the time. We 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 actually ran a program right for these young Palestinian diplomats in training, and they just wanted normal stuff, right? They wanted to be able to fly on a holiday to whichever country they wanted without having to go through God knows how many security channels, etc., to get to where they needed to get. Those are the things that they wanted. You know, to us it's like so simple, like we take it as a given. You know, it's not a given for them. You know what I mean? Um, and, you know, the pressures that the women face, you know, uh, you know, I always thought, okay, you know, in Asian societies, we face some of those pressures as well. You know, not everybody has these opportunities. But I saw this firsthand down there, you know what I mean? It's like you go out for dinner with, with, with the, the, the females. If it's all female, they're not covered up, right? Then when we go into a work context, you know, there's a little bit of pressure for them. So they do have to cover up, you know what I mean? And then... Uh, when it's formal, there's a specific dress code, you know, and you have to be, you know, it's it's so formal, right? And we have that formality here too. I mean, you know, if you work in the government service, you don't you don't come dressed, you know, in these like like I'm like how I'm dressed now, you know, I wouldn't dress like this in a formal context. I'd be in a in a suit, etc. You know, there are those expectations. But there's a little bit more constraint. As a woman, I sort of felt that, you know what I mean? You feel that constraint a little bit. And then you don't, then you realize how lucky you are in this country where for all the old fashioned ways and some of the chauvinism and prejudices you have to face, we're still relatively free to navigate as we want. Now I speak of this as, as a woman, you know what I mean? You go there and you see this and you, you realize that they have certain freedoms, but they are, they are still, they are still circumscribed. They're still put into these boxes. You know what I mean? They're not totally able to do everything that they want. And it's because it's a conservative society, you know? So for the youth, I think there's a great fear that this could become a, a tidal wave that they cannot control, right? So that makes it frustrating. So that's why I say looking at what the crown prince in Saudi Arabia is doing is quite interesting. I don't always agree with the things he says and does. There have been some actions he's taken that I've just thought, well, that would never happen anywhere else. But at the same time, the fact that he recognizes that it is the youth population that need to have those doors open, those pathways opened out for them, you know, uh, the industries or the sectors available to them. He is doing that, whether they take that up and whether they are hungry enough to actually learn those skills and then pursue those in a big way, that's really up to them. You know what I mean? So that's how I see it now. It's probably just a case of when, when you've not been able to drive on your own mm. for your whole life and you suddenly be allowed to, then you know you take those little things as they come and institutions and all can come later. Yeah, I suspect that that's what it is. It's like every, every little thing that they're allowed or they're given the opportunity to do, 
they take those and they, you know, they run with it. You know, it was, it, you know, and so, you know, I mean, although the, a lot of Western media at the time said, oh, it was the big deal about women driving, but for them, it was like freedom. Like me learning to drive finally after resisting it for a long time was real freedom, you know, what I mean? but it was a different kind of freedom. But for them, it was really, it's like suddenly I feel like I can just be who I want to be, you know what I mean? But there are still the constraints, you know what I mean? It's still a conservative, very old-fashioned society. The women are not uneducated. They're very educated. They have great jobs, you know, but they are expected to be everything. Professional, mother, daughter. Where's the space for them to be themselves? And that's the thing that I think the youth are looking for. Where is the space for me to be who I want to be? Things that we, the rest of us, take for granted. You know what I mean? All right. Uh, we've run out of time. Uh, uh, well, there's that, that uh, you know, why, why, why we should care. But I'm not going to let you off that easy. I think in, in one minute, uh, let's, let's see. I, I, I think, you know, I mean, I, I know that, you know, you were part of uh, Singapore's opening up to the Middle East. I won't say how many years ago. Uh, yeah. But uh, so you were there. Yeah. When we were st first starting to engage with them then, you know. So here we are, X number of years ahead, you know, and you've just recently come back from Abu Dhabi. I mean, in, in one minute, can you tell us about your, you know, the, you know, how you see those these big shifts um, that are taking place, uh, and how has the Middle East changed from those those early days? There's a sense of more freedom, um, and I think it's because their the, rulers recognize that. They need to, they need to open those opportunities out. Uh, it's not just about social and cultural. You have to do it if you're going to survive economically. They cannot be dependent on oil and gas forever. They also cannot be rentier estates forever. You can't, you know. They need to renegotiate that social compact. And that social compact has to be a 21st century social compact. Right now it's not. Right. That social compact is not with just the men. You have to negotiate it with the young people, with the women. You know, These are all parts of a skilled labor force. They're small populations. I think they're beginning to realize that because they're so small, every resource counts. Human capital means you. In, it has to be more inclusive. The same thing that's happened here. You know, I mean, like if you tell women that you can't do a lot of things, then you lose half the population, you lose half your workforce. Right, so I think these countries recognize that, um, and that was the thing that I I, I found very interesting. Um, the other thing is that is the fact that they have they are pivoting. I won't say they have pivoted; they are pivoting towards Asia. They're beginning to realize that that not everything is in the West. You know, they're in the East, and it's also a different approach in the East. You know, the Eastern, Southeast Asian, and East Asian countries, and even China, we are probably a lot more like them um, than in the West because we are conservative societies, right? Um, and yet, somehow, we have transitioned or are transitioning or continuing to transition. Singapore is a perfect example, right? We made it to this point. Now we need to go to the next level and it's a hard struggle, right? And we have a population that A, is small, B, aging, and C, declining. So we're in a bit of trouble, right? So I think looking here, the, they really are looking east because I think they're realizing that maybe there are alternative models to the West. You know, whether they're completely wean off the 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 Dependence on the West is another story. You know, I mean, you know, a good example is McKinsey is everywhere and 
in 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 the Middle East. I have some views about about McKinsey, which I cannot say in public. But you know, um, they're everywhere. You know what I mean? I don't think they'll completely win off that. But I think they are beginning to form their own opinions. And I find that interesting. I find the the fact that there's that, that there's this sense of openness and a little bit a little bit more freedom within those constraints of uh, what they have, and and understanding that these are the things that they need to do, right? Um, but I think it will be slow going, and I think they will always it will it will move and then it will stop. It will move and it will stop because the way they are structured as societies and as 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 systems of governance. Are very different from the rest of us, you know. I mean, like in Singapore, you know, it's a it's a it's a British administration model. So you know, we work in a particular way. They don't function in that way. They're a little bit different, and I think we we have to factor that in and be a little bit more forgiving of how they do some of the things that they do because um, they are also finding their own way, you know. But it's it's been a huge it's been quite a huge shift and. Uh, you know, we went there, we were interested in them, they were very interested in us, and then nothing happened. Suddenly now they're interested in us again, and there's actually things that are happening, right? Uh, and so I think we in Asia have to understand that that's how they work, you know. It's not that they, they lose interest, they get preoccupied, they keep circling back to you, you see. And I think that's where it's the, these, this sort of understanding of one another. Aisha might be glad to hear that, yeah. And it's not just McKenzie, but, but uh, McKenzie-type institutes as well. Right? Yeah. Well, thank you very much, Michelle. Uh, that was very enlightening and uh, quite comprehensive. Uh, but uh, thank all of you too, especially those who have uh, come all this way to, to be with us in person and for weeks and weeks. I must thank yeah. you all. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's the end of ME101, but it's not the end of uh, our continued uh, study of the Middle East. So do keep in touch with us um, via social media, via our website, Sign up for our newsletters and 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 do come for our events. Uh, there are some great ones coming up, so mm. do, do keep tabs. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks. Thank you very much. Yeah.